though, I remember um, when we did Oprah, when Mark went on Oprah for the, the first time, I, I felt so victorious because we came back from Chicago and I sat down with the data team and I was like, you can't tell me. There's no way you can tell me that Mark being on Oprah did not have an impact on growth in the site. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Mike Volpe, the CMO at HubSpot, and I'm joined today by Brandy Barker. Uh, Brandy was Facebook's first head of PR, and she's advised some of the biggest startups in the last decade, uh, Uber, Airbnb, Dropbox, uh, Spotify. Uh, Brandy, thanks a ton for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be sitting in my pajamas and you can't even tell. (laughs) (laughs) So I have, uh, we were talking about, you know, we both have kids. uh, I have a pair of Cookie Monster pajama pants, uh, actually, that my my sons love me to wear. Do Do you have any kind of funky pajamas going on right now? I don't have funky pajamas, but if I had some Star Wars pajamas, I would be the hero of my son for sure. Oh, yes. He's slightly older than mine. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, It's Star Wars. Wow. It's funny how timeless that is. Like, I feel like I saw that as a very, you know, relatively young kid um, and, you know, still a fan. But here here we are, you know, 40 years later and it's still a big deal. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, It still, though, pains me that Jar Jar is the one that the kids like the most because as all of us that watched Star Wars early on, that was a bit of a painful character. Oh, really? I see. I didn't know that. My son isn't quite there yet because he he doesn't quite turn four yet. So he's a little younger than yours. But oh, so Jar Jar's big now? I feel that's a shame. Well, you realize how brilliant they were when they brought out the, I guess, the first three, which for us were the second three. Right. Uh, and in making that character, it, it very much appeals to huh. the, right. the toddler audience. So, yeah, so I guess they, they actually knew what they were doing, even though we thought they didn't. Interesting. <laughs> hmm, what do you know? Cool. Now, you, so you're actually at a new firm now that you started with a couple other folks. In fact, it's, it's funny because it's like the, you know, the people that are running t- PR at Twitter and Skype and Facebook sort of all came together. It's like the, I feel like we should create some other cartoon, like the, you know, the, uh, the sort of the, the superpower force of PR that like bring together the three major powers and like have you guys start your own firm. Tell us a little bit about that firm and, and, and why don't you have a website, by the way? <laughs> it's very highly strategic. Um, I, in fact, it's so tr- strategic. The answer is that um, we have seriously not had time to put one together. <laughs> well, that, that also means you don't need to, right? And that's the only reason. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're certainly lucky um, given our, our backgrounds um, in, in the industry to have lots of connections that lead us to um, a fair amount of new business. Um, so, so about um, two years ago, right around when um, I helped Sheryl Sandberg launch Lean In, we launched the Pramana Collective. It was March of 2013. And my business partners are Sean Garrett, who had my job at at Twitter, and then Brian O'Shaughnessy, who ran communications at Skype um, and was at Google before that. Um, And it was sort of the brainchild of Sean and I several years back. We started talking about how we were 
at these companies and often felt like while we had the great resources of various agencies supporting us, often um, things would come up where we kind of need, needed specialists to come in and just focus on a problem um, or an opportunity and help us think much bigger um, to take us out of our day-to-day -day job. And so we felt like there was a, a market niche for that. Um, turns out we were right a couple years later. Cool. Well, let's wind back to, you know, sort of the part of where all this got started, which is back in your time at Facebook. What, I mean, what, so you're at Facebook uh, and you joined pretty early. I think they were, you know, around 5 million users. It was only college, you know, students at that time, 100 and something employees. How, what, what was PR at Facebook back then? I mean, you were the first person, but like, what did, what did that mean? What was the day-to-day -day like? What were the things that you were doing? Wow. Um, well, I, I, I stepped in um, to the role just after Facebook had been going through um, the rumors of Yahoo offering them a billion dollars and them turning it down. So they had gone through a pretty um, visible cycle of news um, before I took the job. Though I, I didn't realize as I was taking the job and couldn't use the site, by the way. Um, so it was um, literally sight unseen <laughs> to, to, some, <laughs> to some degree um, that they were gearing up to launch the Newsfeed product. Um, and so I had a few weeks to fully understand what that product was going to be and just hit the ground running. And, uh, okay, so a few weeks to figure out what the heck is Newsfeed, why is this important. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, so, okay, so you jump in, you start launching the Newsfeed product. But, you know, from there, I mean, how do you think about PR from a brand that is talked about in the news so much? I think, you know, 98% of the companies in the world get no coverage and your struggle is just to get them into the news somehow. Whereas with Facebook, I feel like even back then you said, you know, the billion dollar offer from Yahoo, it's... There were a lot of people thinking and talking about Facebook already. What's sort of the role of PR and communications at, at that kind of, you know, that situation? Well, I think, I think that people look back to 2006 and, and perhaps have a perspective that it was widely talked about. But, but in fact, it wasn't all that much um, because, like I was saying, it was still a website um, or, or a service or, you know, whatever we were calling it back then. I think we were calling it a social utility back in 2006. <laughs> Um, that that less than five million people were using, and almost all of them were either in work networks, um, and very specific work networks are still in college. So, so nobody um, that was pretty much over the age of twenty five, except with the exception of a small group of people, knew what Facebook was. There was some business news out there related to that because of the the Yahoo deal, but. Um, it wasn't really until Newsfeed that that I think, uh, ironically, um, a crisis like that began to catapult Facebook into the the um, the visibility of the media, um, and and that's because a million people were protesting against the site, and and frankly, none of the press that were covering at that time were on the site, so they were covering it from a standpoint of all the all these people are protesting it. Um, and we need to figure out what this what this product is and what this means. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So the, the, I just want to talk about the Facebook thing a little bit more. On your Twitter bio, it says you're Facebook's PR exec, uh, you know, 06 to 10 with the scars to prove it. 
<laughs> can you show us some of your scars? Like what, talk to us about your scars. Like, what are they? Like, what's, what were some of the things, like, what, what were some of the lessons that you learned? I mean, that must've been a fascinating experience. Wow. Um, I, I mean, I think some my failures at Facebook um, are are really what I learned the most from. I, I, I've, I, the scars relate to everything from, you know, I, I think I've been called long-suffering and tireless, and that I had the most thankless job in the business. Um, there was a group that the engineers at Facebook set up um, called the javelin catcher that that they dedicated to my role there because they they felt empathy for what I was going through <laughs> on a day to day basis. And, and was this just you know the the product team would launch they would change some feature on the site and then you know people hate change even if it actually is for the better in the long term and then uh, you would have to deal with sort of the the backlash of the user base and all the articles and all the public commentary about XYZ feature was terrible and people don't like it and blah, blah, that type of stuff. Is that where, is that, were those the javelins you were attempting to catch? Yeah. You know, I, I think, yes. Um, we were always, um, criticized for changes that we were making because a change would impact, um, millions and millions of people. Um, there were clearly very, very notable, um, challenges over the years um, around privacy um, mm. and launching products like Beacon back in, I think it was 2008. The years blend together <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah, the, the scars make uncovering the history more difficult, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not totally sure of, of the timing. Um, you know, like I was talking about Newsfeed. So there there were a couple major crises over the years that that um, reared their heads and were were um, months of managing through to get the company back on, back on track. Um, but a lot of little things. Um, I, I mean, ranging from people accusing Facebook of being tied to the CIA <laughs> and, um, Oh, that's and- not true. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, okay. I, I, I was reading something. The CIA actually started Facebook. And they actually recruited Zuck out of college to do it because they thought it would be a great tool. For, now, is that not true? <laughs> yeah, right? Was, it would have been just, smart. If they had done that, it would have been genius. But, yeah, unfortunately, uh, yeah. Yeah, there, yeah that, I remember there was this video that had circulated where it was this, like, super creepy voice and this whole animation of how Facebook was connected to the CIA and, and this huge con- conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you, the, the funny thing is getting something like that at, at an average company, you'd be horrified by that. But I'm very desensitized now when um, I I counsel clients through right. what I think seems like um, something that they, they can't possibly believe they can overcome. Um, so I think those scars um, have helped me guide companies since then through some more challenging times. Yeah, you must be able to offer a lot of comfort and just say, you know what, you think this is a big deal? Let me tell you what was a big deal. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Okay, so let's turn to, so you mentioned uh, working with uh, Cheryl Sandberg on the launch of her book, Lean In, uh, which a ton of us here at Housewater Bread, huge fans of. We actually, when she came to Boston to speak, we like sponsored the event. We brought, I think we brought like 150 employees uh, there, we brought our whole executive team and, uh, I think we offered it maybe all the female employees plus some other folks. Uh, and it was just awesome. We had a chance to hear her talk and it was fantastic. She's, she's amazing. Why do people love her so much? I think, 
think she is, well, one, she's brilliant, um, in my opinion. Um, and, and I think she's also really easy to connect with. Um, I, I think, you know, the way she views women in the workplace really resonates with a lot of women. I, you know, it doesn't resonate with a whole group of others, but I, I think what I commend her for is her vision and her courage to write this book and create a conversation that had not been happening at the scale that it was before we launched Lean In. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether, whether people were saying negative things or positive things, they were finally saying things about what um, some of the challenges around gender were in the workplace. And I think that's a good point because the conversation wasn't 100% positive. There were definitely people, they, there, were, there was definitely two sides to that conversation. There were. There yeah. Were. I think that's interesting. Does that make for better does that make for better PR if you're slightly controversial? So there's more of a debate about something? Well, I don't think um, we set out with the launch of Lean In to be controversial. I, I nobody wants to um, be the the subject of such negativity um, and, and vicious attacks at times. Um, but I I think Often, what I've seen in my career, when there is controversy around something, and you know, we were just talking about newsfeed, um, you know, that that just catapults people um, in, into, especially now with you know all all the social technologies out there, people are discussing things at a at a much greater scale than ever before. And so, certainly, if there's some controversy, um, good or bad. Let's, you're put on the map. Yeah, no, it's that I I agree. There's definitely been things uh, on our blog in the early days that uh, of thought that stimulated a lot of let's just call it debate, uh, and it 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 creates a conversation. And I think that especially as a as a younger brand or a newer company, um, it's one of the strategies you can definitely employ. And there's good and bad to it, but it definitely it's it's a way to attract attention is to be more controversial. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So with the whole thing with so lean in, Cheryl Sandberg. You were at Facebook for, I think, four years, maybe a little bit more than four years. At, around the end of your time at Facebook, you had, you had your son. Do you feel like, let's just get into the whole, you know, parents at startups, women in startups thing. What, do you feel like you could have had your son when you first joined Facebook and the company was like 100 people? Would, well, I, I think what added to the challenge of my situation was that I was living um, a three-hour commute from Mm. Facebook. So I was working really long hours and then also adding um, a long drive to that. Um, So that would have made it more challenging. But I think that's an example of had I had had the courage to have my son back then, and and frankly, um, now having him as a five-year, almost five-year-old, he reminds me regularly that his birthday, his fifth birthday is is just weeks away. Yeah, he's not four. He's almost five. Yes. Yes. Very important. Yeah. Too. Well, you know, I mean, that's his PR strategy, so. Exactly. It's his strategy to tell mommy every day what, what kind of toys he wants for his birthday. <laughs> um, so I think that that... that that actually, had I had him back then, I would have had to make decisions in my lifestyle to accommodate working at a company like Facebook. So moving much closer. And, you know, I look at the parents um, that, in fact, were doing it more successfully. Uh, well, I wasn't doing it at all back then, but were parents at Facebook early on. Um, 
in those days, they all lived it, like in proximity near the office. Um, and you have to make sacrifice and you make sacrifice, um, from, the, from both parents. Um, and uh, well, I think that's, that's one, yeah, that's one thing that Cheryl talks a lot about in the book, right? Is, is it, there's this kind of partnership and I think you can envision at different points in your career, you know, either parent may need to take a bigger step forward or back, you know, cause you have to manage the two careers and kids and, and all of that. Right. And you could imagine that, you know, if, if you're kind of in the driver's seat career rise, cause you have this awesome opportunity at Facebook, you know, maybe you need a little bit more help for a couple of years, right. During those growth phases of the company. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I think people make trade-offs around, um, what, what the, what you're contributing to childcare from one parent or, or the another, if, or if you're both working, um, you know, it, it, it definitely becomes, um, a, a family decision around how, how both parents work and raise the children. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I, you know, I feel like for me, you know, when I started at HubSpot, uh, you know, I had no kids. My wife had just uh, gotten her graduate degree, was starting, uh, the next phase of her career. And it, I, for those first couple of years, I mean, I joined, we were five people, you know, we hadn't even really raised any significant funding I, for those first couple of years. I don't, I think it would, I don't know how I would have balanced it. Uh, to be honest, I mean, I think for me, it's it's just really difficult. And again, but you know, the flip side is, um, you know, there's a lot of people who have done it, and you know, and then later on, and our, you know, I've had, you know, we've had two kids, so uh, I think it's one of those things that your point about sort of, you know, picking the right, picking the right life situation, making sure it's a family decision, I think is, re- I think is really interesting. And I, I, I don't know, at least I see from all the, there's a lot of people at HubSpot having kids now. Um, I, I see a lot more of that happening. I think a lot of the right conversations are starting to happen. And I, and I think some of it is, frankly, I think some of it is Cheryl's book, actually. Uh, it's not I, the only thing, but I think that, that started to contribute to those conversations, which I think is neat. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that um, I, I just see more advancement um, in, in this area than ever before. I, I, I mean, you see it in even the last year all the big tech companies like Google and Facebook um, and Yahoo and Twitter and and all the the different companies coming out with their diversity numbers and being really transparent around that. Um, you know, there's been adva- advancement around parental leave. Um, I love seeing these companies giving fathers as much um, parental leave as they're giving the mothers, which was never the case. Um, you know, just even a few years ago. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was kind of like, uh, yeah, use a couple of vacation days, figure it out, Dad, right? Yeah, yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk more about PR specifically. So for a company that's growing, you know, wh- where's the right time to invest in PR? Um, how do you think about getting started with PR? And, and the next kind of follow-up question to that is, should you do it yourself or should you hire an agency? Talk to me. Pretend I'm, you know, just started a business or I've been in business for a couple of years and we're starting to get things going. What's what's your advice? I get asked that a lot. I, I probably talk to at least a couple of founders every week, um, either through some of the investments that, that I've made or through new business opportunity that comes in through us. I don't think that there is one answer to when is the right time to do PR. Um I, I think that it's something that every company should be thinking about from the very early stages. 
Um, now, whether that means you're going out and you're hiring um, an agency or an in-house person when you have only 10 engineers and you're in that early stage, that's probably not the, the best use of your investment um, or your, your uh, human capital. <laughs> um, but, but I think certainly um, as you move down the path as a startup of launching, I, you know, I've seen plenty of companies launch successfully with the founders drafting an email and sending it to a couple of the reporters that they they know or they've gotten to know or have connected to through investors, and that gets them launched. Um, and then as they continue to grow, then they consider bringing on um, an in-house person or an agency. Now, there's other cases where there, there's companies that really feel like a, a big investment in, in launching the company and product um, in, in PR is important for them. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're not. <laughs> <laughs> how, well, how, what's your advice on that? Like, how, like, what are some of the things you should think about if you're right or not to make a big investment in PR early on? Um. Well, for example, um, right now I'm in the middle of a pretty big launch of a company that's been in stealth. So by the time I believe this this podcast goes live, um, we will have launched so everybody can look back and see if I did a good job <laughs> with my team. <laughs> yeah, totally. So what, So tell us the company. What's the launch? Um, it's called Color Genomics, and um, it was founded by four gentlemen, two of whom came from the tech industry, um, having worked early at Google and also early at Twitter. Um, and what they've developed, they've spent the last couple of years um, working on a genetic test kit that helps um, women and men discover if they're at risk of breast and ovarian cancer. So the test kit de determines um, by running a 19-gene um, panel test if you're a carrier of the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene or mutations thereof of it. So typically um, getting a test like that costs upwards of $4,000 and you also um, have to clear that insurance would cover that um, and often insurance won't cover it unless you have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer. And so they are um, making this test kit available for $249, which I am so incredibly passionate about because I feel like it just democratizes um, the ability for men and women to take control of their health um, and make more informed decisions than ever before on how they want to handle that. So, give us a, what's the launch strategy? It's, I was going to say a preview, but this will be a, this will be sort of a review for the folks that are actually listening to the episode. So, what's the launch strategy? What's what's the goal here? Well. The one thing I would have changed with how we're doing this is um, it's been a very accelerated um, time frame since um, my company um, stepped in to help them. So I, I typically with a launch um, of a product and especially a product in a company, I think it's good for any founders to be thinking about needing at least um, a 90-day run up to doing that because you, you can't underestimate the amount of work that needs to go into preparing yourself for a launch like that, from narrative and message development to materials to training on how to talk to the media um, to developing um, all kinds of, of press-related assets um, 
that that you would have at the ready um, in addition to you know a whole 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 host of other things. Um, and, but, and yeah, and so okay, so you would like to have more time. Got it. What's the what? I mean, what's the strategy here? Yeah, I mean, what? How do you? I mean, there's so many different things going on right now. I mean, we were talking beforehand about you know sort of Angelina Angelina Jolie and all the things that she's come out with recently, which is very related to this. There's, I mean, it's you know, health is always a hot topic, but I feel like there's a lot going on in related to this this product. So there's sort of a there's a mainstream angle to it. There's kind of a, a you know an industry angle to it. There's a cost savings angle to it, which you know is always a big deal within healthcare. Like there's so many different potential things. Like how do you how do you think about what are the right threads to pull? Um. Yeah, well, that's why I, all those dynamics that you just shared, um, in addition to my own passion around um, tying myself to, to issues, women's issues, um, I, I just talked to, to these guys and it, it was just a no-brainer. Um, the, the other thing that attracted me to working with Color is that, um, by my estimation, they actually have one of the largest number of women investors in the company that I've seen come out of tech in a while. Cool. Um, many of whom are, are friends of, of mine. And I, I just think that I'd, I would like to say I think more tech companies need to diversify their investment base because I think the value that, that seeing that diversity um, can bring just long term is so important. But going back to the strategy for, for these guys, um, you know, I, I, in listening to them, I, I kind of um, just envisioned what the story could be and the timeliness of it um, was particularly unique. Uh, like you said, around Angelina, Angelina Jolie just wrote um, her second op-ed in the New York Times after she had um, her surgery to remove her ovaries. And a, a couple years ago, she did the same thing with a double mastectomy because of her risk of breast cancer. Um, Rita Wilson just um, came out very publicly about um, her breast cancer. Taylor, Taylor Swift um, just announced on Twitter that her mom has cancer and urging everyone to get tested. So from a, a, a culture, celebrity culture perspective, it, it's sort of um, something that more and more people have been talking about. So I really gravitated with this project to um, understanding that this narrative for this company could go all the way from here's a like the celebrity um, pop culture, you know, I, I hate to call it health issues pop culture, but um, the, the consumer um, discussion around it at a, a mass audience appeal down to um, what the the angle could be in in the tech community, whereas you know it's got this incredible investment. People like Katie Stanton from Twitter and Padma Warrior from Cisco to Sue Wagner from BlackRock it's, to Lorraine Powell Jobs through her her organization Emerson Collective. That I mean, that's a great story for tech. And then in between, there are interesting business angles around. Um, how this competes with um, what potentially insurance companies don't don't offer, um, and and then also you know generally like the the cost prohibitiveness and the economic issues around women and men being able to take control of what their their future is with their health. So so that's like that's how my brain works. I, I'm kind of rambling, but like. That's how I, I work through these these story arcs um, for all of it, and so it was. It's a great example of then once you develop your narrative, um, 
based on kind of all these audiences and, and media vehicles, then you go from there and build out your media strategy. Awesome. Well, we will look back at the launch of Color Genomics and see uh, see how well we feel like you did. It's, Thank it's, you. it's a really interesting case study. This is awesome. Yeah, so, well, and hopefully... Yeah. I mean, hopefully this is a great case too of, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully get a big pop at launch, but, um, but it's also an evergreen story that's important to tell. Um, and so hopefully you'll be, you'll continue to measure on the fact that everyone starts talking about it more and more, more over time. Well, okay. So that's a great segue because you just mentioned the magic word measure. So I feel like every time you bring up ROI with, uh, you know, CEOs and things like that, a lot of them say, well, like, how do you think about the ROI of, of PR? Like, how do you measure it? How do you know if it's working? How do you know if the, you know, I could be spending my dollars on something else. Like, what's, what's your commentary on that whole thread, which is a common thread within the PR and marketing world? Yeah, I was just having this conversation um, with a client the other day and one of my business partners. Um, and we kind of started to, to giggle because I feel like I've spent 20 years in this industry and we still don't have a good way to directly measure the impact of what we do, um, on a day to day basis. Now that said, um, I think that what the benefit of working in-house at a company can be, and, and certainly um, for those people that, that work on the agency side, I, I always compel them to figure out how you make the connections to the data team within these companies. If you're able to, as, a, as the PR team, um, work with, with the data team um, or the, you know, the user experience team that, that is tracking acquisition, um, you, you can see an impact in a lot of cases. Now, when I was at a company like Facebook, the acquisition strategy for that company was the network effect. So it was hard to, to correlate whether a story in the New York Times was necessarily directly impacting acquisition because at the same time, you know, 10 million people might have been sending friend requests to, to people or, you know, ask, inviting them to, to the site that way. So, so it was, was challenging though. I remember, um, when we did Oprah, when Mark went on Oprah for the, the first time, I, I felt so victorious because we came back from Chicago and I sat down with the data team and I was like, you can't tell me there's no way you can tell me that Mark being on Oprah did not have an impact on growth in the site. And they looked at me and they're like, yeah, we got a big spike. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do like a fist pump right then or yeah, jumping exactly. jacks or something? Yeah, that's like, awesome. <laughs> yeah, they still, they still looked at me with skepticism. They're like, it was bigger than what we normally see, but we're not going to give up on the fact that all these other levers we've been pulling around growth contributed to sure, it. Sure, sure. Um, but I, I work with, um, I advise a company called Nextdoor. Um, private social network for neighbor neighborhoods, um, and they recently um, did a brief appearance with the the founder and CEO um, on Dr. Phil, and they saw a huge spike in acquisition from that. And they're a great example of um, a company. I I've of a company actually that I they're probably actually stand out in terms of uh, most of the companies where I've worked with recently where they, 
they will um, tell you that PR has a direct impact on customer acquisition for them, and they measure it very specifically. That's cool. And I think also it's, uh, it, if the numbers are a little smaller, it's easier to see the PR spikes. What I noticed in HubSpot is the early days, you know, for the first, when we first, first launched and a lot of the early coverage we got and back when uh, TechCrunch used to drive a lot more traffic, you know, our first article in TechCrunch, you could see big spikes and I can even go back to the old charts and, and, you know, and see them, you know, these days we could get a huge hit someplace and it's, it's just, it's a smaller piece of the overall puzzle. So it's, it, it just doesn't quite stand out as much. You know, so it's a, it's a little harder, I think, as you grow to get that. But I think that when you're smaller, it's, it's really easy to see that stuff, which is great. And it's something that makes it a little bit more measurable. Yeah, I don't know, though, when I was talking about Facebook. Um, well, you're also talking about Oprah. I mean, you well, know, right. Like, I mean, I, <laughs> like, yeah. And by the way, it was, I almost made a joke. You were like, well, the, fir- the first time Mark was on Oprah. Like, I know. I know, I'm still waiting for my first time, just to be clear. Well, there, now there's no more Oprah. So what well, we I know, right. Yeah, so what is, yeah. It's like, uh, is there a new Oprah? What is the, well, is it yeah, Ellen? Her, her show's on her own network now. No, I know, I know. But is there a new, like a new, you know, what's the, what's replaced Oprah is like the place to be? Um, I'm not sure I think there's anything that's comparable. I know, yeah. I, I feel like what's happened there is like what's happened to the rest of the world is like everything's kind of like fractionalized a little bit, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. I do think I do think the morning shows still reach a pretty, pretty That's true. Audience. Yeah, yeah. I was on Good Morning America once for six seconds. Well, and good for you ago. because they're yeah. finally number one. They, I know. It was because I was on, actually. I don't know if you read that <laughs> or not, but... Yeah. No, it's funny that they filmed this whole thing in our office about social media and whatever. And I, I mean, I must have recorded like 35 minutes of material for them and they literally edited my part down. Literally, it was like 6.2 seconds. I timed it. It was awesome. Uh, one, yeah. of my, one of my yeah. bigger accomplishments. Hey, but you know, you take what you can get. Um, right. Gosh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, you've heard that story before. You're not uh, crying any tears for me. What, uh, gosh, what, uh, oh, so, okay. So I want to ask you just as an interesting kind of closing question that we like to do is uh, we're for different people, different questions, but I want to ask you about the funniest sort of PR moment you've had. And I will share a funny moment related to HubSpot, which is while um, manager team's on the road for our IPO on our roadshow, and you know we're gearing up for when we uh, ring the bell to open the New York Stock Exchange the first day when we trade. And our, our technical co-founder, Darmesh, uh, super smart, fantastic gentleman, um, more fashionable than this is going to imply, but the New York Times, uh, the uh, New York Stock Exchange sent us this this email like that's very specific dress code, and the word they used for the uh, lower body garb that men should wear it was trousers, and a lot of us here at Hustle we're not familiar with that term because we're relatively casual here, uh, and and we soon learned that Darmesh did not own any trousers. Uh, so we actually had to send him like over the weekend in San Francisco, actually, because like the next day, then they flew to the East Coast, did like New York for a day and a half, and then roadshow ended. Uh, we actually had to send him out uh, with another member of the management team to go get a proper pair of trousers to wear at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, <laughs> just one of the many weird things that have happened in HubSpot over the years. What's like the weirdest in all of your time, you know, working in PR, you're working with all these executives and their messaging and things like that. Like what's the, what's the weirdest thing that's happened? I don't know if I, I can speak to the weirdest. And, and I, I obviously prompting me. No names? Talking, no well, names you can talk well, about talk, it, maybe? Well, I'm going to tell you the funniest. Okay, fine. Um, and I'm not going to talk about buying Mark Zuckerberg clothes. No. <laughs> Which I don't even think that's funny anymore. I think everyone just understands that that's just like, that's just him. Like, we all know that now. Right. Um, the, so I, I do have to say, like, give my, my, um, 
partners and company credit. I feel like I laugh more now, um, day to day at my company, um, which I think actually humor in any company. If I, if I were to take the thing I care about most, that, that is in fact it. It's just, you know, you're spending eight plus hours a day with people around you. You better be laughing to get through that day. Absolutely. Um, but so this, I, I still, I, I still cry, um, laughing around this and you can actually find it on the web to, to investigate the full story. But back in 2009, um, TechCrunch was TechCrunch, um, as prominent as they always were in, in covering tech news. Um, and we had a very, um, at Facebook, a very, um, I don't know how to describe it, a, a love-hate relationship with them. Um, of course, we all worked well with the, the reporters, but they often were breaking news, and we were having to manage through um, them getting a hold of, of products that we weren't ready to launch and, and working through things like that with them. So <laughs> the engineers decided that they, then there was, a, there was a way to target um, particular networks, and, and the company and most companies still do this today, where if they test products, they'll, they'll pick a subset of users to, to give it a try. And so the engineers decided to target a new product that they were testing called Fax This Photo. <laughs> so where you would click on fax this photo and you know the obvious obvious would happen um and jason kincaid who was reporting for TechCrunch back in in the day noticed because they're so good at, at getting scoops that this popped up on his facebook profile and this must be a new product from facebook and you know he sends us he sends us an email asking us if it if it in fact was a new product and i get it and i'm freaking out i'm like oh my god you guys you didn't tell me about this product and i run over to to the engineering team and they are in stitches on the floor, <laughs> basically telling me that they on purpose <laughs> did that to send it to TechCrunch to see if they would report on it. And sure enough, they did. And so Jason wrote this full story because because we didn't you know we didn't comment on it. Um, and then he had to follow up with the the story talking about how Facebook actually pranked him better than he's ever been pranked before. <laughs> That's awesome. I may need to uh, to dig that one up from the archives and may need to use that in an altered way here. That's actually a good, uh, that's a really interesting strategy. Because uh, for every company, it's, you know, there's... There's somebody out there that's always lurking and trying to figure out what you're doing next, and they always ruin those big announcements that you have. So maybe if you prank them once, it kind of brings them back in line. Well, it just—it was just such a great example. Yes, I think like it made him think twice about whenever he saw a new product. But I think also it, it was just a great example of, of kind of like what developed into like the camaraderie we yes. had with working with reporters. Well, that's got to be a huge relationship builder, right? Because it's this human thing that you can both laugh about, which is awesome. Yeah, and I always, um, I always think of working with reporters. Um, I, I, I put put my respect hat on and working with all of them and, and understanding their job. But do you remember that growing up and there was the, the, um, Wiley Coyote video or um, oh, yeah. cartoons? Of course. And it, Wiley Coyote and the sheepdog would clock in. I think Sam was the sheepdog. They'd clock in at the beginning of the, the cartoon yes. and then they'd chase each other the entire cartoon and then they'd clock out and go have a beer. Yes. 
that's how I think about um, that's PR and, and media. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I like we it. Chase, we chase each other all day. We have, you know, different in- interests at times, but we clock out at the end of the day and we go have a beer. You know, I think the question we're left with in this 24 hour news cycle is what can you actually clock out? Right. You know, it's a, I think maybe that's, uh, hopefully that still exists. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, we do fall asleep at least. Uh, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> Love it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, Brandy, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, thanks for everyone for listening to this episode of The Grow Show. I'm Mike Volpe. The show is produced by Dave Gerhardt. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, we'd love it if you left us a review in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening. Uh, And if you want to chat about this episode, share feedback or future guest ideas, uh, we have a discussion set up uh, for the show at inbound.org slash growth. That's inbound.org slash growth. We have a whole discussion uh, happening there about the show. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon. You know, uh, and then once you listen to some episodes, you can give me some tips on uh, what I actually should be doing in here because I really have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> you know what? Neither do I. Perfect. <laughs> 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 <laughs>